Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We're back with a very special guest. We have Danigal Gothwit Young. She's a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. She's an award-winning scholar and teacher, a TED speaker, an improvisational comedian, and the author of Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear and Laughter in the United States. And her newest book, available now, is called Wrong. How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Welcome, Dan. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so as we normally do, I'm going to start with a passage from Dana's book. Dana wrote, recognizing the parallels between my psychological needs during the chaos of Mike's illness and the psychological needs of many loved ones during COVID, I decided to share my story and discuss it in terms of the psychology of misinformation. My thought was that through vulnerability and humility, I might be able to encourage people to reconsider their decision to embrace COVID-related conspiracy theories, or perhaps help people understand why their loved ones were entertaining these ideas. Understanding the underlying mechanisms of these inclinations, I believed, might help some people connect in ways that facilitated trust and discussion. Mm. So I wrote the online piece, I was a conspiracy theorist too. The emails I received in response to my published published essay told me that I was right. I heard from folks who developed empathy for their conspiracy curious loved ones. I heard from people who suddenly recognized their own impulse to believe COVID misinformation because it helped them feel less frightened. It may seem odd that a social scientist is willing to share such a personal story, especially one, one that reveals that I embrace conspiracy theory beliefs. As a scholar, I'm supposed to be rational. I'm supposed to make observations based on data and logic. Educated people do not entertain unfounded claims, right? Wrong. We all have inclinations from time to time to believe information that isn't true. Not always for long, not in all domains, not always in ways that have harmful effects on us or on others. But we all are motivated to comprehend our world, feel in control, and be a part of a community. Sometimes these motivations lead us, lead us to believe things that are demonstrably false. So as a former conspiracy theorist, I mean, I'm not going to go into it too much just because I've, I've harped on this topic God knows how many times. Uh, but like, so it's so great for me to have somebody like you actually admit to something like that as well. So before I even kind of go into what that means, uh, kind of how that's sort of affected even, you know, kind of my life, how that affects people, I really want to get your story. And I want to first understand how, what were the conspiracy theories that you subscribe to, uh, kind of how have they influenced your way of thinking and, in, in, you know, kind of the future, because conspiracy theories tend to, or beliefs tend to cascade upon one another. And then also, how the hell were you able to come out of that? Yeah. So the, it, I don't know that they were specific like very specific, it wasn't like there was one specific conspiracy theory. There's there's this concept called um, conspiracy ideation, where it really is just sort of embracing the the ethos of conspiracy theories, and that's what was happening. So so my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor uh, a month after we moved into our house, into this this house where I still live, and so this was two thousand and five. We had a one-year-old, no, at that time, we had a 10-month-old baby boy. We had just moved into a new house. We're just starting our life. And he's diagnosed with this brain tumor. And it just was more than I could, I could not reconcile how this was possible, right? Because, you know, you're in your late 20s, you're starting, you're, you're launching. And everything was getting derailed. So I felt completely out of control. And I for for a couple of days, I took to bed. I just like was so upset. I just couldn't stop crying. And then it was like, what is this? Where did this come from? 
I need to understand like, how did this happen? Because if I could have a sense of where this came from, then I would have a direction, right? I would have someone to be mad at. So I started doing all this, like, I don't know, like diving into um, websites about in like environmental sites around where maybe there were like chemicals or something, but that didn't make sense because we had just moved into the neighborhood. So that didn't totally make sense. And then I was trying to figure out if maybe there was something at his office. So I was trying to figure out if there were other people who had sicknesses or illnesses. And it was, it was like, it, it, the grip was strong, right? Because once you're in there, there's a momentum to it and you can start connecting dots. Even though the dots are far apart, you can find ways to connect them. So for a good few weeks, that's kind of where I was. And that went into the time period when my husband had multiple surgeries and then he was no longer able to really speak to what was going on because he didn't even know what was going on. He had, he had no short-term memory. Um, he was really ill. He could still, he was really hilariously funny. He was still his loving self. His personality was still intact. It was so wild. It was his, his frontal lobe was unaffected. So all of his executive functioning was fine, but it was the, the midbrain area that was disrupted. So he didn't know he was sick. He didn't know he was blind. He didn't know he didn't, he could not, he, he had no metacognition. So as the days unfolded, his whole approach, he was a comedian, artist, somebody who always just embraced life as it came. He would never have embraced conspiracy theories. And our friends at the time were also like that. And their focus was like, how can we support you and Mike and the baby? How can we, maybe we can come up with a schedule to make sure that when you need to go pick the baby up at daycare and Mike's in the hospital, Mike still has someone to like feed him a meal or read him a book and like tuck him in before bed. So the way that my friends were creating control and having agency in this moment was not through conspiracy theories. It was through like love and support and these constructive behaviors. And mm -hmm. so as fast as I went in that rabbit hole, I would say it was the social norms of my community that immediately pulled me out. Because even if I, I started saying things like, I got to figure out where this came from. I got to figure out what this is all about. My friends were like, I don't know that that's helping Mike right now. Right. We were in an acute moment of crisis and they were totally right. It wasn't helping, even though it felt good. Right. That's the thing with conspiracy theories. And what a lot of people don't understand about the emotion of anger. Anger is very much at the heart of conspiracy beliefs, because if there's powerful people in the shadows doing something to help themselves or to harm you and they're doing it secretly, um, Anger is the natural outcome of that because you're going to feel resentful of these powerful people in the shadows. And that's the meta narrative across conspiracy theories, that one that the you know people in the shadows doing bad things. Um, anger, as much as you think of it as a negative emotion, it has this weird side effect of increasing optimism, right? There's a momentum to anger because there's a target to it. It's not like fear or anxiety. Fear and anxiety are are bad for a whole host of reasons. Mm -hmm. And one of them is because in terms of fight and flight, fear is the flight emotion. Anger is the fight emotion. And when you have a direction, it can feel good. So there's a real, there's a real addictive property to that. So that that's that's my story. And I'm I'm grateful to my friends and to to Mike, whose approach to life kind of informed my transformation in those months.
No, it's good that you came out of it. Definitely with the support, you know, from friends for sure. And the, the social group around yeah. you that definitely yeah. helped. But I got to say, it's very understandable. Like I could imagine, um, you know, let's say after the first surgery didn't take, you're thinking, oh, okay, did the, like, did the doctors do their job properly? Like, exactly properly right. Exactly. Cut what they needed to cut. Uh, yeah. do, are they are not incentivized to uh, completely treat them? Do they want them to come back, thus make more money off of, you know, exactly. uh, continued treatment? You start to think these things um, and that need for like sort of uh, being able to, uh, like, as you talk about in the book, uh, comprehending the situation, yeah. trying to control the situation. Um, that need for that, I mean, it, it almost takes over uh, and sort of gives rise to that conspiratorial thinking. It, so, it absolutely does. Yeah. If you've ever, if you've ever cared for or been a part of a community of support for anyone who's going through cancer or any other kind of treatment, these these kinds of thoughts are very common. And yeah. I have friends who are doctors and they say that they deal with this kind of, of thought process all the time because it's people trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. It's very, yeah. very common. Yeah. And you, you know, it's so funny. Well, I mean, it's sort of funny, sort of not. So I had a really bad stomach virus over the weekend. And so I was talking to my mom and like my mom going into the control aspect of this was like, oh, let's think about what you ate. Right. Let's think about all of the things that you did and where you went. And yeah. I'm like, dude, I think it's just a virus. I, I'm like, I don't think that there's any way to sort of figure it out or like figure out where it came from. Right. So, you know, she's like looking through all of these like different sort of facets of my life and what, what could be taken yeah. out and how do we prevent it the second time around. And I'm like, dude, I haven't had a stomach virus in like 10 years. I'm like, if it were something I were eating or something I was doing, don't you think it would have came up at that time? So it's so interesting how we think about it. So sometimes it's very sort of polarized where, and we're definitely going to get into this, where it is black and white, where we're looking for an enemy, right? So if you're looking at like, you know, big pharma and, you know, corporations who are kind of like poisoning us. And if you even go into the extreme, now you're talking about like the government created AIDS or whatever. Uh, but then you're also talking about it in more kind of benign forms where now the idea is like, oh, okay, well, there are certain things that you're doing that you can actually, you know, not do to prevent these harms to come, you know, that are coming to you. So it's kind of interesting yeah. how our minds are just, it's so hard for us to accept that some things literally happen when you just go to the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that one of the burdens of being human is that we have these, this capacity for executive level functioning, and we have this capacity to identify cause and effect relationships, which, which is wonderful and has allowed us to do amazing things and survive and like build cities and, and mm -hmm. subway systems, right? Mm -hmm. But those systems are also always driven by these needs that we have to feel like we comprehend the world and have control. And sometimes the world is incomprehensible and uncontrollable. And Yet our brain is still doing what it does, which is running on overdrive to like put pieces together, you know, solve the puzzle. And it'll land on a solution that feels satisfying for one reason or another, but might actually be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And you could even see this with COVID. Like there's either not right yes. denial of it, the fact that it's like just a hoax or it's not happening or whatever. And then on the other hand, where there's this understanding that, well, maybe we can control it. Like, I mean, I'm not, because I don't want to really get into sort of some of the, let's say, 
I don't know, downsides or whatever of liberal thinking, because I obviously subscribe to that, uh, let's say, political persuasion. But my point, and I agree with it for the most part. But uh, what I'm saying is that, that when you're thinking about, like, uh, let's say, you know, if you get, like, let's say there's this kind of belief that if you get all of the vaccines and you mask up, you know, it's like a, a way of preventing it, right? So it's like either a hoax on one extreme, or if we just take all of the necessary precautions, we can prevent it. Where it's like, none of these things are true. And so in your book, you talk about these two different forms of thinking. And so I want to actually get into now, you know, my personal stuff. Oh, so system one, system two. Actually, no, I wasn't. Oh, but that's, sorry, my bad. Actually, the book, uh, actually. Well, I, I was going to, okay, I will get into that, but not, not, yeah, that's actually good. Okay. Uh, so what I'm actually going to talk about is uh, the rigidity of thinking and the need for closure. And then as opposed yeah. to that, the, the sort of, uh, yeah, the ability to be kind of more to feel or experience ambiguity. And so for me, I'm actually more of a rigid thinker. So I don't know if you would call it more of an intuitive thinker, because I'm, I guess I'm in this sort of middle ground where I actually prefer data, but I actually, mm -hmm. I don't like ambiguity. So I like to kind of get the data. And then I'm like, okay, cool. I'm now I'm kind of closed off to it. So now sort of just linking this back to COVID. So do you feel like for the most part where people tended to struggle and, you know, these people on the extremes are people who do, did need closure, where people on the one hand that either needed to say that COVID was a hoax or on the other hand needed to say, well, if you just follow these prescriptions, if you just follow these rules, we can all kind of beat this virus together. Where again, there's a sort of sense that ambiguity is intolerable. That's a, that's a great point. We know that need for closure is actually a strong predictor of belief in conspiracy theories and misinformation. And it makes sense because if you are high in need for closure, you need certainty, you need predictability, you need answers. And if you need answers fast and you need them now, that means that you're going to gravitate towards an answer that is readily available now that may not be empirically accurate, but it fits the bill, right? So I, I, and most of us have this need for closure at some level. We know that it is a psychological trait that varies across mm -hmm. the population and also correlates with political ideology, which I think is interesting. People who are higher in need for closure um, tend to, or, or that's correlated with, more socially conservative views. So, and, you know, in my first book, I talk about how you can really trace that back to the threat monitoring systems that vary across individuals for various reasons. And if you have a very high threat monitoring system, you're going to be high in need for closure because you are concerned about interpersonal threats. And having a high need for closure is something that allows you to address that impending threat, right? If you feel like there are impending threats in the world, you're going to want predictability. You're going to want certainty. You're not going to be okay with the not knowing because the not knowing and the shades of gray and not knowing what's happening next, that allows for the, for, you know, threats to come in. Um, but I think that you're right. And I think especially under conditions of uncertainty and crisis, like COVID, the early days of COVID, I don't even like revisiting it in my mind at all when it was like, we don't know how it spreads. We're not supposed to wear masks. Um, because the masks aren't going to do anything, we were told. And we're, we have to wipe down our groceries. And yeah. remember, there was like yeah. the cruise ship that was like stuck off the coast and they wouldn't let the cruise ship come to any port because it was filled with COVID. And what a mess. And it was like watching cases spread around the world and looking at the counts. And it was like, oh, now it's now it's on the West Coast. Oh, it's in the United States. It was horrifying. It felt like a wave of death. It was like slowly approaching. And we weren't sure where it was coming from and what to do about it. And if you are high in need for closure, that is going to trigger all kinds of, of reactions in you. Even if you're not high in need for closure, it's probably going to trigger a need for closure and a need for answers. 
No, for sure. I mean, I have a friend who, so we're in New York, right? So yeah. essentially mostly liberal here. Uh, for example, when we were told, okay, uh, wear, you know, uh, wear masks to stop the spread or to reduce the rate of spread, that kind of narrative, we were cool with it. Not, not even that at the time experts said, you know, that's the thing to do to reduce transmission. Great. We have a friend, I won't say his name, uh, but we love him. We love him. Uh, but at the time, and no, I do not blame him because again, there's that need for uh, closure. You're having all these sort of reactions at the time. You're sort of in this crisis mode and you're kind of picking a lane to sort of uh, think in, I suppose. So uh, he think, he thought that everybody was, uh, he would call them sheeple because they're going along with, you know, he would say things like, uh, uh, do what your government tells you. And like, he would say it very sarcastically and it almost, it, like, I, I'm pretty good with this. Usually you can say something to me without it hitting a nerve, but he got very close because I'm like, because he would just say it so sarcastically, like as if I'm just this person choosing to do something that's completely crazy. But I don't know. Just it seemed like a lot of people were uh, panicked at the time. I feel like people would just have a horrible reaction if you just weren't wearing the mask. Like they didn't even feel good around you. You almost, I would think, even as a driving principle, I want people to feel good around me, right? And okay. if yeah. So that think about yeah. that now, Alan. So think about yeah. the different psychological and sociological drivers of that one act of putting on a mask. On the one hand, it's I. I have heard and read and I trust experts who say that this is slowing the possible transmission of virus from me. Maybe I'm, I don't, I'm asymptomatic. I don't even know it, but maybe I've got COVID so I should wear a mask sure. and that is going to stop those droplets. That's one motivator to wear a mask. Another motivator to wear a mask is I want people to feel like I'm the kind of person who cares about other people. Sure. So I'm going to wear a mask because I want to signal to other folks that I'm not an asshole. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, truly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then, but then think about over time. And I talk about this a bit in the book over time, as the different strains of COVID came out and I forget, I mean, there've been so many right over the years, but in later strains of COVID, there was some suggestion that the masks were not as effective in preventing the spread as sure. earlier. And we also learned that when you were outdoors, if you were, you know, three or six feet apart from people, there was very little risk of transmitting the virus. And yet people felt a lot of social pressure to continue masking, especially in very liberal or progressive enclaves where now the mask is not just an evidence-based scientific practice. It's not just a health, like a, a preventative measure. Now it's an identity. Now yeah. it's part of like, this signals that I am a good person. I'm not one of those people. And that is where, and that is the perfect example of how identity can really cloud our judgment. I mean, think about it. So here are folks who are like, I'm engaging in a science-based behavior to wear a mask. And then over time, maybe the evidence and science changes and they're going outside and they're at a barbecue, but they're like, I can't take my mask off because then I look like a jerk. <laughs> well, now that's no longer a scientifically motivated behavior. Now that's a social identity driven behavior. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I totally, uh, even now in New York, you still see people see out, uh, them outside with masks. And mm -hmm. here's the thing. I respect 
your choice to do that. I don't want to say anything too controversial here, but at the same time, I do have like a sort of feeling inside where I'm thinking, yeah, but like, don't you know, like that the most, at least recent news is it's not that effective. And then you kind of see them uh, going with it. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, yeah. I respect that choice, but at the same time, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird that, it, uh, how identity well, works, right. You, you feel like is. you have to, well, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Yeah. And so now can we get into that? Because I think this is probably for me, at least one of the biggest questions of this particular episode. So what we know from the data is if we're asking, let's say, if we're looking at groups of people and we're asking, okay, how do you come to the truth, right? And how do you come to, let's say, your sets of beliefs? I mean, we know from the data that it's pretty much based on the team that you're on. So Democrats have these particular beliefs, Republicans have these particular beliefs. So what's so interesting, um, not to kind of babble on about this too much, but I do think it's, these are kind of important points, is that like, if you look back, like, let's say in the 50s, right, you could see that the vast majority of Republicans would, let's say, subscribe to a 90% tax on the top 1%. Like that wasn't controversial in the Eisenhower days. And now it's like absurd. They'd be like, oh my God, I, we don't even want you know, the top percent, 1% to pay like 30% tax. So I wonder if, if, let's say if that's the case, right? If really just the way we get our beliefs are just through these kind of echo chambers and it's pretty much through the websites that we follow and, you know, social media, like tidbits or whatever you want to call them. Like, how do we then sort of build a sign? How do we build an identity or how do we build a sort of cons consensus based on just data and based on the facts? If there's a fear that, okay, if I post this, like here, I'll just give a, I guess, a somewhat of a silly example. So let's say, you know what Alan just said, right? Imagine Alan posted that on social media, like, hey guys, you know, masks are not effective, right? And he might be like, oh, fuck, I don't want a bunch of liberals. Yeah, I don't want a bunch of liberals to now shit on me, right? Because I'm kind of like one of them, right? So how do we then begin to combat them when, again, it doesn't seem like the data for, I don't want to say for either side, because that's not fair, but at least for, because it's probably less important for conservatives, I think. Uh, but let's say that for even for liberals too, there's a criticism there that for the most part, you guys gather your information just based on group thing. So how do we begin to challenge and combat that, especially with how important identity is to people? Yeah, so there's like three different questions in there. But let me just say to address the last piece, which is like if you're on social media and yes, if Alan went on social media and said this thing that kind of contradicted the liberal ethos, all of his liberal friends would probably pounce on him. Um, one of the things I talk about in the final chapter is how I feel that we have it, an obligation. We have a real duty to do just that, to be honest about our views in order to complicate and disrupt the political information environment, which has become so bifurcated. Because what happens is when people are in their little team, they, they're only going to say the things on social media that their team is going to go rah, rah, rah. That's absolutely right. But that ends up sort of exacerbating everyone else's perception that all liberals feel this way and all conservatives feel that way. When if people were more honest about those viewpoints that they had that were more nuanced on everything from guns to abortions to transgender rights, if you actually drill down and ask people, people are far more nuanced in what they believe than you would be led to believe by what you see online. What right. ends up happening is that the people who are the most extreme, who have the least tolerant views, they're the ones who dominate the information space and they kind of have moved the goalposts so far out there that if you, you know, if you do not adopt that orthodoxy, you feel as though you can't even chime in. So my suggestion is it we owe it to ourselves, to our communities, and to democracy to be honest in how we communicate our views, even if there is some interpersonal blowback. Um, but I think it's important for the information ecosystem. Um, the other piece of this is 
you know, your, your point about the, what the parties were like in the 1950s, this is sort of at the crux of the book. And I have to deal with it early on in the book because the American story is such a weird one. Mm-hmm. People are really not clear on how the parties have gotten to where they are. They're like, oh, we're so polarized and the elites are so polarized and this and that. And, you know, the history, people are like, oh, I don't want to get in, you know, in, into all those details. But the details aren't that freaking complicated. It is that in the 1960s, there was a racial realignment of our political parties, right? Through the push for the Civil Rights Act, as as Blacks from the South migrated North and West to cities, um, they really shaped the priorities of Democratic lawmakers in those places. And so the Democratic Party came to embrace civil rights and racial justice as like one of the pillars of the party. So then you have the Republicans now. Now you're in a bit of a pickle if you're the Republican Party, right? Because now now what are you going to do? And there is a lot of literature and evidence that in the 1970s, the Republican Party deliberately courted evangelical Christians. A lot of them courted through this sort of latent racist rhetoric and policies um, and really activated what was a dormant, you know, evangelicals weren't really a political force Mm -hmm. up until like the, the eighties. Yeah. With Jerry Falwell. Exactly. So, so now what happened and what political scientists have kind of tracked is that the political parties in the U S now, the, the democratic party and the Republican party have come to Um, define different groups of people. So it's not just about different ideas. And this becomes very dangerous from a democratic standpoint, because if you are, if you look at democracies around the globe, Hmm. where democracies end up in real trouble and where they have a hard time thriving is when the political parties overlap with ethnic sects, religious sects, when it's no longer just about a difference of ideas, but difference of identity, Hmm. it, can create all kinds of social chasms. And so in the US right now, we've got a Republican party that is not to a person, but quite frankly, very homogenous. It is overwhelmingly white, Christian, largely evangelical Christian, rural, mostly rural, and uh, culturally conservative. And then you have a Democratic party that has evolved as well, but it's a weird. It's weird because as you know, Ezra Klein has this great line in "Why We're Polarized," where he says, "You know, the Republican Party has evolved into a party of sameness, and the Democratic Party has evolved into a party of difference." Mm-hmm. So, the Democratic Party, you've got, you know, it's diverse racially and ethnically. It's like, yeah, there's some Christians, but it's really agnostic and secular, or suburban and urban. And I mean, yes, it's culturally liberal and become more culturally liberal. But what happens is when you have, when you look around and people of your political party all look the same, they all worship the same, they all live the same, they all drive the same truck, they all do the same shit on the weekends. What happens in that environment is this, what what Liliana Mason calls this sort of identity alignment, where for those folks on the right, especially, their identity is more and more salient every day because they look like their team in a thousand different ways. They feel like their team in a thousand different ways. And when social identity is salient and on your mind, it is easily ignited and it's easily exploited. 
It doesn't take a lot to activate it. All you have to do is be told, you know, hey, there's migrant caravans coming over the southern border and they're mm. going to try to ruin your way of life, dilute your race and take your job. Right. Yeah. So those kinds of identity threats that we see from Fox News, I see as a sort of manifestation of this social sorting of our political parties. Right. Yeah. And you could even see this in the context of now the conflict with Israel and Palestine, not to get into this, yes. but I do think it's important. And you could see this even in yeah. connection to the media where you could see the more kind of Christian, uh, I guess, conservative stations, they play up more to the Israeli side, you know, it's yeah. all about Hamas and, you know, savagery on the Palestinian side. But then you also get like, you know, the Al, Al Jazeera news side, and then you get uh, Russian television, obviously, who hates Israel. Yeah. And then so, you know, for them, they're more pro-Palestinian. It's all about freedom fighters, etc. But it's yeah. so interesting how, again, you get like sort of this un this un kind of willingness and unsort of or inability to even kind of understand that this this sort of dynamic and the conflict that's been going on you know way before we were born it's so much more complex than the way it's mo so mostly presented more complex. yeah yeah there's yeah. like 50 layers of nuance yeah. that have to be understood beyond even just even if you understood currently what just happened there right yeah. you still need to understand yeah like let's say yeah history not just that one problem I have is that when like information trickles down to the public, right, and then they pick a side, which is very interesting. They pick a side, right, of Israel or Palestine. Because it's they like, have high need for closure, Alan. It's need for closure. That is totally. That is. But what's funny about that is why can't anyone admit? Because I'm I consider myself, I don't know. I mean, I don't I mean, I think I'm uh I, I wouldn't say I'm like smart but I, you know i would give myself average intelligence something like that i don't think i'm better than anybody i like to say that i actually haven't done all my research on this like can nobody admit that they're just getting fed like some piece of information and then it i don't know and then they get this whole like they're so sure of this narrative whatever narrative they're taking they could be right don't get me wrong but I they just, could be wrong yeah and they could be wrong and it's just like I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of people like that. But again, yeah. I don't I can't confirm that. But right? can we also now connect this to the media, because essentially when the media, again, these different extreme forms of it, when they feed information, I mean, they feed you certainties. Right. So, you know, then the question is going to be and, you know, this is the it begs the question of why. Well, why does it do that? Why do we have polarized media? Right. Why do we have something like Fox News that can admit that, OK, the 2020 election is over? And then it's like, oh, no wait, We've actually changed our minds. Now there's a conspiracy behind it. So why does this happen? Why does the media not only just play into this? I think that's, you know, the small fraction of the problem. Why did they kind of ignite this to begin with? So let, let me just say that was a, such a great point, Alan, about the, you know, people speaking with huge certainty about this conflict. And one thing that was really frustrating to me um, about like a week after the terrorist attack on October 7th was folks saying, Everyone needs to speak out right now and say what side they're on. Take a stand. George Bush, like, you're with us or against you're us. You're with us yeah. or against us. And I'm like, <laughs> for the love of God, you know, what this information environment does not need is another asshole like me who doesn't know enough about what's going on to emo respond emotionally based on some team identity that might lead me in the wrong direction and succumb to social pressure and like put my flag in the sand and say, here's what I think. 
Because when you do that and you take a public declaration in that way, do you know what's going to happen? You're going to then feel compelled to not change your mind. Right. And that is devastating because if you, if somebody has said, you got to take a stand, you take a stand, you put it out there. Well, now you don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, then if new evidence comes up and you're like, well, but, but I already took that stand. So I don't look like a jerk. It is th those inclinations I think are very harmful and devastating. So allow people to say, I don't know enough. I'm learning every day and I'm listening to the best of my ability. Absolutely. And also when you do take a stance, like you said, you're essentially crafting a social identity where there's now, yes. uh, you have to, you're, you have social pressure to adhere and maintain that identity. It takes way yeah. more energy to decide to, you know, uh, take it back. Right. Uh, because yeah. then you get, um, uh, kickback from a not kickback. I'm sorry. You get, uh, there's consequences to yeah, that. You, People, you, become yeah. hero. you become a social hero or, or a hypocrite. Yeah. Yeah. Risk, yeah. Yeah. Going back. Uh, what was your question oh, about the media about, oh, the about media. media? Okay. Yeah. So, well, I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure you're younger than I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I grew up where I remember when we got cable and until we had cable, we had three channels. And so if you <laughs> wanted to watch the news at six 30, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, and they all basically told the same news. It was really like, either you're going to have Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw or Dan rather. And it's about what color Harry like, I mean, I, it was like the same stuff. So when you know, I don't want to overstate the role of media fragmentation and you get a thousand different cable channels, a gazillion different internet outlets and, and websites and now social media. And now every single person is also a potential source of information. Yeah. But the way that the economics of our media environment changed when we went from broadcast to not broadcast is massive because instead of appealing to, instead of selling advertisements, and ad ads targeted to giant, giant audiences that were all different kinds of people. So you're mainstreaming everything. The economics of media shifted to have to identify tiny little niche markets, right? Niche, niche, niche. I don't know how you want to say it. I'll say, I'll, I'll say niche. Okay. <laughs> I, I was a French major in college. I'll say niche. It's like the little fail line. I believe it's niche. I believe it's niche. Um, so... If, if you're, if in order to really deliver for your, basically for your advertisers now, all these media outlets are really looking to create super engaged, really targeted, homogenous little crowds of people, like loyal little audiences. And because our political parties are such amazing proxies for all these other identity categories, like we talked about, especially on the right, mm -hmm. what better way to segment an audience with a readily activated identity than the conservative audience? Mm -hmm. So Fox News, I, I think part of the success of like Fox, and then you look at the success of the conservative media ecosystem outside of cable, it's massive. You look at the, the ecosystem, the conservative ecosystem of like digital outlets, there is a huge appetite for that kind of content on the right. And it is mm. outrage oriented. It's, it's all about threat, right? It's all about identifying threats to our social identity. Mm. Um, so 
part of what's going on is the economics of a fragmented media system that can make really efficient use of ignitable social identities. And that's what they're doing. And, and you know, I don't want to just shit on Fox. all. I mean, I do want to shit on Fox all day long, but <laughs> I, I can't only shit on Fox because MSNBC does it too. I have yeah. some data in the book where I, you know, I, I talk about, you know, some of the really over the top displays of, of uh, social identity during the Supreme Court nomination hearings for Justice Jackson and how like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley did these really over the top performances of like what it is to be conservative and talking about letting pedophiles go free and and racist baby books and critical race theory and all this stuff. Well, where those performances, those identity displays were covered most, MSNBC, mm. right? Because think about it. What are they trying to do? They're also oh. trying to activate the identity threat of their viewers because mm -hmm. that is engagement. Engagement yields action and action yields purchase and return, et cetera. Yeah, yeah we, so it's all for marketing. Essentially. Yeah, and you, yeah. you know what's so interesting about all of this is that it, now I'm just thinking it through. Like when you think about conservatives, what they've done, and I think this is so it's so genius. I don't know how uh, how calculated this was, but I think it's so genius. What they've done is they've created like a solid singular identity. Whereas I think if you're a liberal, like even though there's definitely a lot of infighting amongst us, I think for us there's more of a there's more of a sort of a, a bent, right? Like, so sort of a, some of us will say like, you know, we're kind of far left or whatever. And I mean, I, I have to point this out. There have been so many fucking people on the liberal side who have like, oh, you know, far left are anti-Semitic and they're calling for like the extermination of Jews. That is not the case with the vast majority of the far left. I am not a DSA person, but I promise you, I know these folks are not fucking doing that. Some of them are, that is a thing, but it's it's been exaggerated for, for their own sort of fucking benefits. But the point is to say that with liberals, like you can see this sort of spectrum, right? You can see that, okay, some of them are more moderate. Some of them are like more sort of uh, kind of geared toward Biden. Uh, some of them are like the kind of Elizabeth Warren progressive types. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. some of them are like Bernie Sanders. And some of them are like way off the board where they're like, hey, we're like fucking completely socialist. We want to do the system altogether. But conservatives, man, what they've done is they've created this beautiful unified whole where like now it's even hard to tell the, tell the distinction between, all right, who are the Trumpers and who are like the moderate Republicans? I can't even see the difference. I feel like, mm -hmm. it, maybe, look, maybe this is my own bias, but I feel like with conservatives, if you if you like ask them like hey how do you guys identify i think almost all across the board they will all tell you the same things where this 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 and this and they will say yeah and i could point out my fellow conservative like that whereas i think for liberals it's often hard for us to tell like wait is this yeah. person as liberal as i am are they a little bit further to the left are they more bernie sanders are they more elizabeth warren uh do they hate capitalism do they want to work within capital like you know it's all kind of like yeah. all over the place but yeah with with uh conservatives man it's not really like that they're like we know who's on our fucking team but they but what's interesting to me though is that the party and this is what makes me very very nervous about today's Republican party and I am a political scientist I am an institutionalist I do believe that we need strong parties and you know people who most people who are on the left are like f it let the Republican party implode um I I don't the way that democratic systems work we do need a conservative party um what the Republican party has done though if you look at what they've done to with Mitt Romney, what they did to Liz Cheney. They basically purged the institutionalists. They have purged those who are even quote unquote moderate. If you look at what happened with the House Speaker vote, that's totally fascinating. Like what a shit show that was. Because, and, and you know, don't be fooled. The reason that Jim Jordan did not win 
the speaker role was not because of any, it was not truly because he was perceived as too politically extreme or too allied with Trump. It was because he's perceived as an asshole, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at now, you look at Mike Johnson, Mike Johnson has been an ally of President Trump. He is a mega Republican. He is, but he is by all accounts, very, very nice, <laughs> right? So if you look at, it's about his interpersonal style that has allowed him to, that allowed him to become speaker. But when it comes to his politics, you know, he talks very clearly about the role of his faith in shaping his his political identity. So you want to talk about that identity alignment and how the Republican Party is really sort of increasingly molded around this pillar of evangelicalism. I mean, right. that there's there's Mike Johnson right there. Um, but I, I have been in, intrigued by some of the. Some of the internal debates among Democrats over what's going on in Gaza. Because I do think that to the extent that parties can have internal debates, I think it can be useful because mm -hmm. if we are these giant monoliths, I think that we're entering a, a I think it's a slippery slope. Right, so sure. I have, you know, I just think it's been interesting. I don't know exactly where I stand on it normatively, but looking at some of these internal debates on the left between you know, is the Biden administration giving Israel a free pass? Is Blinken doing enough to urge restraint? You know, is the U.S. complicit in, you know, harming Gazans, et cetera? I think those are important conversations to have. And I think that to the extent that they can actually produce substantive debate within a party, instead of just a reflexive like, I am a Democrat, so I think this. I think that that is democratically healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what keeps coming up? And I know you and I have definitely talked about this uh, because you frequently talk about steel manning is you frequently even now on the left uh, with the liberal sort of circles, you get the, these kind of straw man, you know, arguments. And so what you get is like, let's say I'm not going to like point out any names. I mean, it's just I guess it is what it is. But it's mostly like people on Twitter, even people that I've looked up to for a long time in the past. What they'll do is they'll caricature the other side. So they'll say, oh, OK, like the far left. Right. Oh, my God. And how many fucking times have I heard this? The far left wants against the extermination of Jews. You know, they want genocide they they praise hitler or whatever and i'm like dude how the fuck do you guys like believe all of this stuff right so you know dana we talk about like uh sort of getting together and having an actual a fruitful debate and figuring out these complex yeah. issues right but then how do we get around these straw man like tactics that are again are honestly in my opinion it's all yeah. for cloud chasing man i feel like the only reason yeah. why these people do this is because it gets them followers oh i mean i i haven't i mean of course the, the question is directed at you but i have just like a suggestion yeah maybe yeah. uh, if if we could have um you know, two willing uh, parties, two uh, specific uh, candidates on uh, either side uh, actually agree to have a debate and maybe have it televised or on social media, hopefully uh, people with enough clout on either side. And maybe that can uh, get some sort of uh, virality and, and viewership. And uh, yeah. then you can actually see what a sort of a long form sort of discussion with like, let's say, uh maybe a, a mediator and then there, yeah. you have you have to do that style of steel manning in regular you know interpersonal like debates which uh, who knows if, if it's on twitter you're not gonna yeah. get a whole and that's not the point back and forth in 150 yeah. characters or less or whatever it is right. now um so yeah i mean that 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 would be good if we could uh, yeah. set that up but otherwise it's but, too yeah. hard 
But I also think that what you're talking about is you got to think about what, what is the goal of the conversation? Because a lot of times when we see debates that are televised, they're not actually debates with the goal of producing any understanding. Like synthesis. And, correct. They're not debates with the goal of yeah, synthesis or truth finding. Most, and, and again, because of the economics of our media environment, most of the debates that we see are entered into by individuals who are looking not to ever have their mind changed. It really is all about clout. It's about performance. It's about, if it's political leaders, it's about you know getting on the news later and having clips to go viral. It's about performing the identity of their team. It is not with the goal of understanding. And so one of the uh, traits that I talk about, one of these, these the concepts that I talk about in the end of the book is this concept called intellectual humility which is individuals who are open to the possibility that might be wrong and who operate in the world always cognizant of their own fallibility. Then yeah. that doesn't mean that they're always like, you know, steamrolled by everyone. It's not that. It is just always, always being open to the possibility that there could be more information out there that could update or even contradict your view. And one thing that our media environment really punishes is intellectual humility. Like, I don't know about you, but I do not ever recall in the last 10 years turning on the news and seeing one of those pundit panels on CNN or, or Fox or MSNBC yeah. and seeing anyone say, here's my position on this, um, although I, I could be wrong. Or to say, I've changed my mind and have it not go like punished, right? And yeah. Although when where we did see that, ironically, uh, Tony Fauci often performed intellectual humility. He said, right now, based on the data, here's where things are at, but we're not sure. We don't know if the evidence is going to change or evolve. And if it does, we'll, you know, we'll change our recommendations. And he was skewered because people have a high need for closure and mm -hmm. they wanted him to come up with an answer and stick with that answer. And if he didn't stick with that answer, the sense was he must not be trustworthy, not that the science has changed. And because he, you know, the the epistemology of science is intellectually humble. A scientist mm. never removes themselves from doubt. Like anyone who's an actual scientist will not say this is proven because science doesn't prove things. Science, we're just always going through this process of elimination, but we're never done the list. You know, it's depressing as hell. Um, so, but I think that those performances of intellectual humility and valuing intellectual humility helps us advance conversations that establish actual understanding because it's not about clout. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love is that one of the best mediums where you do actually get intellectual humility is podcasts. So thank God they're yeah. so popular, that is, right? Like, that, is so, yeah. that is so true. Not yeah. all podcasts embrace intellectual That's humility. That's true. But, but I, I think a lot of a lot of them do. Yeah. yeah. I also when I talk about these ideas, I got to say, everyone is like, I love that. Oh, my God, that's so refreshing. Yes. And then I'm like, if there is that if there is that big of an appetite for this and people are like, oh, that would be so wonderful to have in our public discourse, then like, let's just freaking do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's show it. Let's illustrate how it's done. You know?
Yeah. And now let's even get into the main topic, which is interesting that we didn't really cover it, which is literally misinformation. So who do you, <laughs> so in your work, who do you find is the most susceptible to to misinformation and are, and on these sort of different extremes and these different sides, yeah. uh, what sort of, let's say misinformation are Democrats more susceptible to, and what yeah. sort of misinformation are conservatives more susceptible mm. to? So th there's, there's wonderful work by some um, conspiracy theory scholars, and they have a paper called uh, Conspiracy Theories Are for Losers. And mm -hmm. what they do find is that the, the people who are most likely to embrace conspiracy theories are those who are on the losing end. So especially on the losing end of elections. Mm -hmm. So if you look at 2016 and Hillary Clinton's loss, there were a lot of, of conspiracy theories among Democrats about, I mean, what went on in the 2016 election. People still, people on the left will still say, even though the Steele dossier, the Russians, whatever, the whatever the, the PP tapes and all that stuff has been largely debunked, there's no evidence of it. There are folks, many folks who will say, mm, we just haven't found the evidence yet, but it's there, mm -hmm. right? That's still, that's conspiratorial thinking. Um, yeah. So maybe the most glaring example we saw in 2020, and that is the, the what happened with the insurrection on January 6, 2021. Um, that was belief in a conspiracy theory by you know supporters of the losing candidate. So yes, conspiracy theories are for losers. Um, conspiracy theories are also, well, I'll say misinformation and conspiracy theories are believed in by all of us. And that's one of the things that I want to hammer home in the book is that all of us are are you know subject to this all the time if we are feeling like we need to comprehend the world have control over it and have community within it and there's a conspiracy theory or a piece of false information that fits the bill we will tend to embrace that because sometimes reality really sucks and doesn't fit the bill um in terms of what kinds of individuals are more likely there are some um, social psychological traits and predictors that I find really interesting. So I have that chapter in the book where I talk about this um, distinction between intuitionists and, and rationalists. Right. Um, now, I don't want to separate it into either or because that's not how it really works. All of us use both all the time. All of us make decisions based on our instinct and our gut on the one hand and evidence and data on the other. And, and the systems themselves, if you look at the neuropsychological research, it's really not clear that they're like two different systems going on. Like they're very intertwined. However, when you ask people on the one hand, um, how often do you trust your gut to tell you what's true? How often do you go based on intuition? And then on the other hand, ask them, um, do you agree that uh, a hunch needs to be confirmed with data? Do you believe that evidence needs to be brought to bear on et cetera, et cetera? What you find is, first of all, those things are positively correlated, believe it or not. So people who say that they use intuition also say they use evidence and data. <laughs> um, but for folks, there are some folks on the fringes who are more likely to put faith in intuition and emotion and instinct. And on the other hand, there are folks who say that they're more likely to value evidence and data and to devalue intuition and instinct. And what we find when we look at those, if you take like the, the top 25% intuition, the top 25% evidence, there are marked differences in their belief in misinformation. Hmm. The intuitionists, the emotion-based instinct-driven folks are much 
more susceptible to misinformation beliefs than those who put their faith in evidence and data. And the, the most intriguing thing to me was that, and I published this piece last year with my colleagues, that it's not just that these ways of coming to truth are correlated with belief in misinformation, but these ways of coming to truth are also correlated with political beliefs, mm. especially support for Trump. People who support Donald Trump were significantly more likely to report being driven by intuition and emotion and instinct. And they were also more likely to report devaluing or you know, putting less faith in evidence and data. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that is a, a, a reflection of how these people are actually coming to truth, like in terms of cognitively what's going on in their mind. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think that belief and intuition and instinct and emotion or saying that you use these things to come to truth, what a handy little escape hatch. Because if that's what you say you're doing, you don't have to wrestle with the complexities of evidence that tells you you're wrong, right? So I, I do think that when, when you're looking at someone like Trump, who himself has often said, yeah, my instinct, I'm driven by my gut, by my instinct. I think that when you look at populist authoritarians like Trump and how they talk about instinct and intuition, I think a lot of it is largely strategic because I think that they're trying to get supporters to embrace that ethos, because if they do, then they can say, you know what? I don't, I don't even need to deal with that confounding evidence because that's not how I come to truth. I come to truth by listening to my gut and like, what, what a diabolical, but brilliant strategy. Yeah. You know? and then, yeah. You know what I would also add to that? And I wonder um, what the research on this is or if there has been any, but another like, so I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist for the most part. I mean, I do a few things, but that's like one of my main ones. So what I find with a lot of my clients is that there's a sort of mediating factor here and it's the lack of trust in people. So I find, and yeah. you know, this is, yeah. this is purely anecdotal. So what I find is that between the, let's say distinct uh, entities of, let's say on the one hand, the people who are more intuitive and the ones who are more evidence-based is that the ones who are more evidence-based is that they're way more collaborative. So the reason reason why they trust, like, let's say data, they trust experts is because they think if they're, let's say, doing the research or spending their time, they think it's done by reputable people. They think That's, that it's pretty yeah. much, yeah, that it's information that can be counted on. Whereas on the other hand, the intuition is the sense that I seem to get from, not maybe from everybody from the, but from a lot of them. And by the way, I'm kind of in this, in this sort of a click or whatever group too, is that uh, to whatever extent, but the reason why is that they'll say, well, I don't really trust research and I don't really trust other people. So it's like when you ask them, okay, like, when did you start relying on your gut? They'll tell you, well, honestly, since I was a kid, it's like, this was my environment. Like the data wasn't reliable. My parents weren't reliable. Maybe I felt my teachers weren't reliable. You know, the school system wasn't reliable. That's so, yeah, fascinating. I, yeah, yeah. So I realized that I was the only one I yeah. could trust. So yeah, when people yeah. say things like, oh, why would I waste my time on research? What they're really saying is that the data is bullshit. The system is corrupt why that's would right. you waste yeah right. why would you waste your time yeah. listening to people who are literally out to corrupt you yeah well i know that when you look at the linkage between belief in misinformation and support for like or, or belief in conspiracy theories and support for like populist authoritarians those are both rooted in fundamental distrust because populist authoritarians think about somebody like trump who's like i'm going to drain the swamp they're all, they're all dirty. They're all corrupt. There's corrupt elites. Everybody in higher ed's corrupt. Science is corrupt. Uh, media is corrupt. 
you got you can only trust real people like me and you like we're the yeah. real people right that's tapping into distrust and what is what are conspiracy theory beliefs it's the same thing it's the people who are in positions of power are doing things to benefit themselves and to harm us and you know we need to band together because only we will figure out what the real truth is they're both steeped in distrust right. and and distrust is such a corrosive influence in democracies because it now a healthy level of skepticism is mm -hmm. always awesome for democracy, right? Where people are, you know, questioning the information from authorities, pushing back on it, trying to find new evidence to bring to bear on the information. But distrust and fundamental distrust is nothing that anyone says and no evidence that any elite could ever show me could ever be taken as true because they're not trustworthy. What then it's like a tautology. And then, and that's also non-falsifiable, right? I mean, conspiracy theories are always non-falsifiable. Like if you say there's nothing that you could ever tell me that will change my mind, that's not scientific. Like that's not yeah. scientific reasoning. Um, but yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I've never thought of that at the individual level, but there's this linkage between at the individual level, this distrust. And check this out. Okay, so now here's going to be the counter, well, not a counterpoint, but the other side to this argument. So it's also been argued, and I would, so like I haven't diagnosed people specifically, but it's also been argued that the vast majority of the political elite and just politicians in general do have narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. So, it, so it's been argued, okay, like, so, and honestly, the distinction here, this part doesn't make sense to me. So it's been argued, and uh, there have been psychologists, people just like on social media who've done this too. Uh, but like, so they would say something along the lines of like, well, you know, we're Trump, he has also antisocial personality disorder on top of that. That's what makes him so dangerous. So they'll say something like, well, like, let's say Biden, Biden is highly narcissistic. But the thing is, it's within somewhat of a manageable territory, even though, honestly, people with high levels of narcissism, I mean, it's all malignant shit, like it's all pathological. So I'm not really sure how you can say, well, Trump is the bad one because he's antisocial, but these other ones are like more manageable. So but whatever. But the point is to say when people do say things like, well, like the elite aren't trustworthy, right? I would say that there also needs to be somewhat of a distinction because in the it's let's say academic elite with you know science and whatever uh like you know kind of more uh let's say rigorous fields uh where they're not based on let's say popular uh, let's say conceptions and you know popular votes mm -hmm. so the idea there is that there's more of a testing and there's more of a check and balance system there whereas opposed to let's say you know popular politics i mean essentially it's who has the best voice who's the most rhetorical uh who's like the best looking sometimes you know so there's more of a let's say kind of an emotive aspect to it mm -hmm. so what's so interesting is on the other end where you do have like let's say like people like our friend you know who will say and i actually by the way, I agree with him on this. So he will say, well, look, yeah, politicians are corrupt. And I would say, yeah, actually, I mean, a lot of them are highly narcissistic. And you do actually find out that a lot of these Democrats, even though they do seem on the surface and look, they do really wonderful things. But yeah, sometimes there are other, I'm not going to mention any names here, but there are people in the, in, especially locally in New York here who had their homes raided by the FBI. And we were like, holy uh -huh, shit, uh -huh. why, did, why did that happen? Right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. But yeah. But then, so, so, but the da the dangerous outcome of this to me is you hear people, look, think about how Trump ran. Trump was like, I am independently wealthy, so therefore I can't be bought. Right. So therefore I have integrity. So by default, I'm honest, which can I, can we just talk about the illogic inherent in that little calculus? Because yeah. it assumes that all of the money that he has amassed, which we don't even know how much it is, but 
it has been amassed through some kind of legitimate means, right, in the first place. I've also heard the same thing about folks like Elon Musk. It's like, well, he's the wealthiest man in the world. So he does not need, like we can trust him because he has he has nothing to gain from et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so we should trust him. I feel like that is a recipe for disaster. It also feels like it, it, an internal flaw in that logic. Right. But do you think that maybe the point here is not to necessarily blindly trust anybody then? It's to say that, okay, you know, we can't be on one extreme where we're just disavowing the system altogether, but we can't also be on the other extreme where we're just blindly trusting politicians and saying, well, you know, they they won like through fair means or whatever, you know, they have our best interests at heart. Because again, we know a lot of times that isn't true. So maybe it's some sort of middle ground between them. Yes. And you know what, Leon, because people have high need for closure, there's a lot of folks who are not going to like being in the middle. But yeah. you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. look, the, the key is that Ben Franklin, who talked about moderation and all things, we have this information environment does not help us in that regard. People want all or nothing. They want black or white. They want, you know, up or down. And the way to, I think, a peaceful existence and a strong, healthy democracy is in the shades of gray. You think there's a way, I had a weird thought, there's a way to sort of craft a mega identity, but sort of, you know, middle of the road? Because I know it's, you know, it's either yeah, one extreme yeah. or the other, but yeah. crafting a new one. Yeah. That's a great, okay, so that's a great point. So some of the, I have some political science friends who have looked at ways to disrupt the partisan mega identities through priming an American identity, which of course there's drawbacks to that too, because do you really want to prime nationalism? Like that could be a yeah. shit show. You got to be careful of that. So my suggestion is if you back up a bit and you think about, actually there's data on this. If you go small, go real freaking small, and you mm -hmm. look at getting people to reinvest in their communities, through reinvestment in local independent journalism. If you get people thinking about themselves as members of their communities, it actually helps to disrupt all of this bad stuff. So huh. instead of thinking about the culture war issues at 30,000 feet, people are thinking about the pothole on Main Street and how to support local businesses and whether or not the football team is doing well and, oh, we should get a new wing in the library and, you know, that kind of stuff. And hmm. that that, when you look at places that have really vibrant local independent newspapers um you find a better record of like lower political polarization and and part of it it seems to be there's a little bit of causal um evidence that that information infrastructure of the local independent journalism recentering people's identities on their communities instead of on like biden versus trump that that is yeah. what is contributing to that yeah. And you know, what's so funny and Alan, I like that you brought that up a lot. So it's like uh, going back to kind of our own circle and our own friendship. So I used to be of the belief, not anymore, but I used to be of the belief that your morality is pretty much shaped by your politics and vice versa. Like the two pretty much go hand in hand. But what's so interesting is that now when you kind of boil it down to the community level, like the people that we're friends with that are more so on the libertarian side, honestly, we don't even really think about it and talk about it. Like it just doesn't affect our day to day. There's this famous line, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it's by Hunter S. Thompson, where he's like, listen, man, he's 
He's like, the things that go on in Washington don't go on here. And the things that go on here don't go on in Washington. So yeah. I feel like that really applies to our circle where we could look at our friendships and we could say, well, I feel as though this person is a really good friend. He's contributing a lot to us. Uh, let's say, you know, he's there for me in certain times. Uh, there are things that let's say he and I do together, you know, values, beliefs that we share. But yes, ultimately, when it comes to like our perspectives of the world, we don't necessarily agree. So it's so complicated, but also so interesting that on these different levels, you get these different kind of versions of what you consider to be moral. By the way, uh, I didn't I didn't expect to speak about this. So yeah. real quick, not True. to harp on it, but the Israel, uh, Israel Gaza thing, Palestine thing. So um, my friend and his girlfriend actually broke up because they had sort of two different uh, really? viewpoints on it. And I spoke to each of them, right? And I was saying, I just couldn't fathom. I was just thinking, and this actually connects to this point. It's like, what is what's going on over there where you're not even technically involved? You guys having just two different sort of identities about, you know, the narrative that you believe is true. How are you able to totally disconnect from your entire relationship where everything else is good over this thing, which you technically are not that connected to maybe maybe that some is yeah. that is completely I, yeah. how long had they been together a year oh my and gosh. really happy yeah yeah so that's that is so fascinating to me so i do think that for some folks that what's going on there is is very central to their identity depending upon you know if they're activists or you know studying in a particular area i think it could just be a very like identity defining yeah. Um, topic. Um, but it it also, sometimes when you look into these dynamics and you say, okay, well, if you went back in time and looked at the history and walked back to 1948 and went through it together, are there, are there grains of truth that you could agree to? Are there aspects of these two competing narratives that you could agree to so that then you could move forward and kind of put that issue to bed? Yeah. Um, but if they can't, I mean, who knows if maybe there's other issues in the relationship, but, but I, I don't know though, because I've, I have the same, you know, there are a lot of folks today, obviously who are like, Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't date a MAGA Republican. Like yeah. how, think about, you know, folks who go online dating and they immediately are like, I'm choosing based on political party. Like I will not date people of the opposing party, but, but at least, I mean, that's close to home. So you feel like, well, I get that, but sure. yeah, that's interesting. But on the other hand, if if of course if you met them out and you didn't know their political affiliation and you like yeah. them and then you found out what's their political affiliation, you know, then you have to somehow integrate that, right? Well, and yeah. some people might not care then about what their political uh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, but you know what's so interesting about this? So, and this is how I would kind of distinguish the two. So on the one hand, so the MAGA Republican thing, I do understand because I think there's a value set there. So you would say, okay, if this person is a MAGA person, that means they're probably uh, pretty like consumed by greed. I mean, no offense. Uh, they're pretty like, you know, kind of self-absorbed again, no offense. Uh, so they're pretty like, you know, sort of unwilling to empathize with the other side and yada, 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 right? So there's a bunch of kind of inferences that you could make there. But when you're talking about like, let's say the distinction between, let's say Gaza and Palestine, and what side are you on? Uh, what I see there is actually two two distinct sets of empathy. So you have two people that can yeah. empathize. Yeah, that can empathize with the suffering of each side. So what I would think is like for that relationship is I think that's actually reconcilable. Whereas like dating like a Republican, it's over. 
think it's, it's over. over. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but, guys. Know, but, you know, don't you see with some of these folks, you hear about these relationships and it's like, wow, they just make it work. They just do. They just make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With yeah. completely different views. I, I don't know. So my, one of the, the, I mean, I love my husband for a thousand reasons, but one of the reasons is I do think he keeps me intellectually honest because, you know, he is liberal on, on a lot of things, um, but he is a prosecutor. And so I, I talk about him a lot in, in interviews because I feel like he shapes my worldview. Mm-hmm. He, compl- you know, I'm a college professor and in the world that I live in, there are no bad people, right? Like the world is easy. The world is great. And that's not the world he lives in. And so to be reminded of that and to be reminded of the fact that, yes, we need law and order, even though that that terminology has been, you know, branded by one side. All right um, there, Richard Nixon. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but but I so value having my own sort of value set disrupted constantly. Like, but here here's a piece of disconfirming evidence. Here's a piece of disconfirming evidence. Um and I think it makes me smarter. And he always says, I mean, he's very nice, but he always says that that I make him smarter. Um, and, you know, I help because you can imagine the world that he inhabits. There's a social identity there, but all mostly mostly dudes, right? The de- detectives and they're, you know, pretty conservative worldview. Mm. So I, I keep him honest. And I think that the if you have shared underlying values and a shared humanity and shared morals i do think that there are ways to to move forward now of course everyone has their non-negotiables and i actually write in the book that in terms of finding solutions to some of these problems my non-negotiables are like you know any solution to these issues that undermines equal representation and voice across race religion sexual orientation those are non-starters like that's just mm-hmm. not a thing so mm-hmm. if you're like oh well you know how we could really all get along how about we just exclude these groups of people and then we'll be fine it's like that's not an answer to these issues yeah. um so those we are in a pluralistic liberal democracy and so those are non-starters um but if you can find if there are disagreements that operate on top of those like assuming that you have those things that you share um, I do think that if we perform intellectual humility, there are ways forward. I would actually ask that of your friends who broke up. Yeah. Were they were they embracing intellectual humility as they approached those conversations? I'll tell my hunch is um no, <laughs> but I will ask. <laughs> I will definitely given that they ask. given that they broke up, I'm gonna say probably not. But hey, maybe it's a it's a time thing. Maybe maybe with some time, the emotions will sort of lose their momentum, and maybe they can embrace that humility. Yeah. It's possible. I'm hopeful. Yeah, so, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and what? So yeah, before uh, as we start wrapping up, because I I do feel like it's an important topic. So what I love about like you know as you, as you get kind of closer to the end of your book, what you start talking about is that it's not really either or, right? It's not really the right way to look at it. So in terms of the intuitive thinkers and the more kind of like evidence based ones, so what's so interesting again correlating this with CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, is that like so a lot of times we teach about uh, what are called cognitive distortions, and it's interesting that the term used is distortion. So I want to give you a really uh, a quick example. So we have in the 
the 10 distortions, the 10 whatever distorted thinking styles, whatever you want to call them, there's something called emotional reasoning. So emotional reasoning is pretty backwards, right? So like, let's say if, uh, I don't know, I see a bear or something, right? Then I become scared. I'm like, oh my God, there's a bear. So I'm obviously scared. Uh, but what people do with emotional reasoning, it's kind of the other way around, right? It's more intuitive. So you start to think, oh my God, I'm anxious. Therefore, I must be in danger, right? So I'm really sad. Therefore, my life must be really terrible. Uh, I'm really angry. Therefore, this person must be an asshole, right? So, and the thinking is like, they're distortions, right? So, you know, system one and system two, now we are coming full circle, right? So the thinking sometimes is a system one is bad, system two is good. And it's not really like that. And I would argue that in terms of CBT, that's a really poor way of teaching it. So again, you know, going back to what my clients said, when they said like, well, you know, intuition is the only thing that I can trust. That's actually not in itself a bad thing. What we want right. to teach clients, yeah, what we want to teach clients is that it's not that intuition is bad. It's just that like, hey, it can be part of this broader system of thinking. So when you're using your intuition, let's say you are using emotional reasoning, you know, and you're telling yourself, oh my God, I'm really anxious. Yeah, maybe you are in fucking danger, right? The point is to say that, can we add system two to that? So instead of just using intuition, can we kind of fuse the two together and say, okay, maybe there's some merit to what you're saying, right? So on the one hand, you're saying, hey, you know, I'm really sad. Uh, and then, okay, maybe you're awfulizing, right? You're saying, I'm really sad because my life is shit. Maybe there are parts of your life that really are shit. Maybe we should examine what's actually good about it. You know, maybe you are mental filtering too, which is this uh, cognitive style where you're essentially like blocking out the positive parts of it, mm -hmm. of your life. And then maybe on the other hand, right, there are really parts that you can and should try to change. But the point is in all of this is that you're saying, again, it's not either or, that not only do we need like both sets of people, obviously, I mean, even though nobody's really at the extreme, except for, you know, very few, we also need both thinking styles. So the point is to say, it's like your gut, your gut is not always right, but it's not always wrong either. So yeah, again, there's a sort of way of yeah. seeing this in black and white where you're like, no, you got to be like a perfect system two thinker. It's like, no, then you're Mr. Spock and you literally have no feelings at that point. That's you can't right. be that person. Yeah, that's right. You know, so I just want to tie this because that, that was such a great example. The, the, when we think about emotions and intuition, the reason that we have them is because historically they have helped us, right? They're adaptive, they're functional. Um, the problem is that in our political information environment right now, it's not what some scholars would call a benign information environment. The signals that we are getting, that we are responding to are not authentic signals, right? So if we were like out in the jungle and we saw a lion and we got like that, we saw their teeth and we got scared, we could probably trust that that fear response is signaling something meaningful. Right. But now if we're watching Fox News and we see something that makes us feel fearful, um, that information that we've been exposed to has been selected and produced in a way to elicit a fear response from us. So we can't always trust our emotional responses that developed through, you know, intuition. But we now we can't trust them because they've been co-opted and they're being right. exploited. And and I see that I, I actually am just starting, you know, based on the story we started with, I have mounds of trauma that I'm still working through. I have all kinds of cognitive distortions from that time, you know, when my husband went through 13 brain surgeries and I mean, it was just awful. So I'm still trying to work through it. And those cognitive distortions produce exactly those dynamics that you're talking about. So in a way, the yes, you should be able to trust your emotions to lead you to like, oh, this is my alert system telling me that something is wrong. But if you have PTSD, your alert system is freaking broken because the trauma cre made it so it's no longer a benign information environment. Right. It's kind of similar, right? The trauma serves as almost like the Fox News <laughs> in the <laughs> equation where it it 
you know, it screws up the linkage between the emotion and the response. Yeah. 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 It's like you become solely dependent on your emotions to protect you rather than thinking to yourself, okay, because let's say maybe it's like 50, 50, you know, the environment could be dangerous. Maybe it's not. I can give myself a chance to actually examine my emotions. Yes. No, the belief is like, no, because it's so dangerous out there. I have to go with my gut every single time, 100% of the time. Right. And that, yes. I mean, it's ultimately that's going to ruin a person's life if they do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So as we begin to wrap up, I have to say, by the way, I love the audio version of the book. You do the narration, right? No, I. No, it's it not sounds me. Like you. It's not. You know, no, oh, but uh, I think her name good. is. I think her name is Rachel, and she did my first book too. And yeah, she's 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 great. She has a great voice. I gotta say, I, I anyway. This okay. So I got it wrong, but I gotta say, I love the book anyway. I hope that people buy it. I just want to ask you uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book. Uh, where can we do that? So the book is on Amazon. It's also from Johns Hopkins University Press, and um, you can always ask for it at your local bookstore. Uh, I am on on whatever the platform formerly known as Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm Dan Danigal. Uh, that's my first name, and then on uh, Blue Sky. Uh, what am I on Blue Sky? I'm Danigal on Blue Sky as well. So the Blue Sky is kind of what I'm trying to migrate towards a bit more these days. So. I cool. hear you. Awesome. Dana, thank you so much for coming on. This was legitimately one of, I'm sure you awesome. agree. Yeah. One of our favorite episodes of the yeah. year. Oh, thank you. You guys are so great. These are, so, I love where the conversation took us. It was so organic and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Right. Again, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right. See ya. All right. So it feels good to be back. So everyone, uh, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on seize the, at seize the moment podcast on Facebook instagram on twitter where it sees underscore podcast like subscribe hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. youtube again thank you so much for watching see you next time